0: I'm Jeff Cohen. To say my next guest, Matteo Rothstein, experienced some rough patches as a kid would be a huge understatement. But the circumstances of one's childhood don't automatically dictate the trajectory of adulthood. That's certainly the case for Matteo, who overcame some really difficult challenges in his upbringing to find his way to Orthodox Judaism. Matteo, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Hi, Jeff. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story. I know there's a lot of details and information we're going to get into, but as with all of our guests, we always like to start at the beginning to set some context. So give our listeners a sense of where your story begins. Where were you born and raised? Well, I appreciate your appreciation. And um, (laughs) as Mr. Rogers famously said, um,
1: like many good American Jewish stories, they start in Brooklyn.
0: And so we have a story beginning in Brooklyn. How would you describe your family religiously in the early years? It
1: wasn't. I was told when I was uh, much older that my family stopped being religious in the old country. At least I know for one side of my family. Once they came to America, all the more so. There were no cultural influences on them to continue being religious. That being said, I do know there was some level of kashrut that was observed, but that didn't get passed on to my grandmother, my mother, and certainly not when I grew up. So my father wasn't Jewish, and my mother was very much an ardent secular Jew. Not that she philosophically believed in anything that could be associated with why she's a secular Jew or a cultural Jew. At the point she had become so assimilated, her goal was to just be normal, to be American, which... In her mind's meant not being outwardly Jewish. That being said, we did have a menorah, a Chanukiah, I should say. It was a little electronic one. There were just eight lights that were always shining, and that was uh, it. Didn't matter which night, and uh, you know, it was off to the side, and we had a Christmas tree, and it was filled with lots of lots of presents, but nothing necessarily religious about the tree itself. I didn't know anything. I had never heard about Shabbos. I had never heard about any of these things. I have no recollection of anything particularly Jewish. I can't say how I found out I was Jewish. When I was five years old, I went to public school. I was five years old and there was a, there was a bully in my class and he said something mean to me. And he looked at me in the eye and he said, you're a Jewish bastard. And I was really upset because of what he said. And I went to the teacher and I said, he called me that word. And she comes over and she starts reprimanding him. And how dare you attack him for being Jewish? And who are you to say? And you have no idea what the Jewish people have been through. The teacher herself was Jewish. And so I was really confused because that's not why I was upset. And I had this identity that was kind of thrusted upon me through a very disturbing, hurtful experience. And... That was kind of my introduction to being Jewish. I didn't really ask any questions about that afterwards. I I didn't say, what is this Jewish thing to my teacher? I just said, okay, I'm just going to go back to whatever I was doing.
0: Now, I said in the introduction that there were some difficult circumstances of your childhood. So whatever you feel comfortable sharing about your parents' story and how that might have impacted your childhood, if you could go into that a little bit and and then we'll connect it back to your Jewish journey.
1: So I mentioned my father isn't Jewish. He himself had a very difficult life from what I've been told. He struggled with drug use throughout his entire life. And... That was before I was born. I don't have a picture of my father and I together. It was never part of my life. And I found out when I was nine that he died of a drug overdose. His family wanted nothing to do with my mother and I. They were, in her words, a bunch of Jew haters. And so I was always in contact with my mother's side of the family, which is very much culturally Jewish.
0: And so what was it like for your mom? So now it's just her raising you. So what was that relationship like once it was just the two of you?
1: It was a very challenging childhood. Throughout my childhood, there was a lot of verbal and emotional abuse. That was a near daily occurrence. Also, the reality is Brooklyn. So everyone's kind of yelling at each other anyway. So it's kind of like (laughs) it is a much tougher culture there, but also much more, resi- they're very resilient.
0: So first, I just want to say, as I'm listening to you talk about the relationship with your late father and your and your mother, that I imagine when you're a kid, you, you just want loving parents, like you just want those healthy relationships. So I'm just like really sorry to hear that that's how your story begins. Like every kid deserves to have that comfortable, healthy, safe sanctuary when they're growing up. So I just really feel sorry you didn't get that. And as I'm I'm listening to you talk about it, I'm just thinking, were there other family members who maybe saw what was going on and found a way to step in and try to get you into a better situation?
1: I appreciate that.
0: Um yes.
1: So my mother's sister, she always knew about my mother's unstable mental health condition and for years tried to motivate her to try and get support. She advocated to my mother and other family members that I was going to need more support she would call me regularly and she was always kind of checking in. And when things got very heated, I would call her up. As time evolved, she became my mother. Eventually it became abundantly clear that if I wasn't taken out of my house, that Well, she didn't know. Nobody knew. It was a very unhealthy situation. My mother's mental health situation became more and more unstable. And she eventually got my mother to agree to let me leave the house at 12 years old. And my aunt called me up on the phone and she said, Sweetie, what if I gave you the chance to leave your house at 12 years old? And I said, What do you mean? And she said, I know it's not getting any better and i want to help make it better and i i just finished sixth grade and i'm being (laughs) i'm being told that everything about your life is going to change if you make this choice and it's scary because it's the unknown i was going to leave where i lived I was going to leave my friends, the relationships, any kind of support system, my Taekwondo school. (laughs) I was leaving all sense of my identity. And I jumped at it. And so they found my aunt, found a boarding school in Florida. And I spent the next six years of my life at that boarding school.
0: Did you feel like your life got better, that you were now in a better situation during those later teen years before college?
1: When I started boarding school, there was so much structure. It was overwhelming. I felt out of place. It was difficult to make friends. Kids used to make fun of me for having a Brooklyn accent to the point where I trained myself to sound like I'm not from Brooklyn. It was hard at first, but there was a caveat put into my aunt's offer when I got sent to boarding school, which is if you ever get expelled, you're going back home. This is your only chance. So whatever struggles I was having, I always knew that if I ever was being too precocious of a teenager, resisting against authority that teenagers are, are well-known to do, I was going to be, in a sense, like put back in a prison. So knowing what I know now, um, especially as an educator... I realized the importance of very clear boundaries with clear consequences. I really did need that because I didn't have that at home. I had uh, I grew up in a place where there was so much instability that I wasn't sure what could trigger an unhealthy response. and there was no clear discipline and there was no rhyme or reason. In boarding school there were very clear, rules and boundaries. And I eventually came to thrive in it. I went from almost getting kicked out of school to becoming a National Honor Society student. So
0: that's a really beautiful turnaround, given the circumstances that you were in to have really overcome a lot of that adversity and found your way in boarding school. I want to kind of advance the story now. Let's go into the college years. It's kind of a three-part question. Where where did you go to school? What did you think you were going to do career-wise in terms of your major? And what role does Judaism play as you find your way to a college campus?
1: I went to Ecker College in St. Pete, Florida. I wanted to study psychology. It was always a passion of mine, just trying to understand people's motivations. And two years before I went to boarding school, though, is when 9-11 had happened. And I eventually chose to study international relations because I was so disturbed at what could motivate people to commit such horrors. and. I was fascinated by all the other conversations that arose in the in the wake of 9-11. I was so dissatisfied with the reality that that was handed to me. And I wanted to be part of something that could help change
0: it. And the Jewish side of things? Because when we last left your story, it was like a completely secular background and very little exposure. So what's going on during those college years? Are you reconnecting it all with Judaism? Are you having any experiences?
1: Yeah. In terms of a Jewish identity in college, I would say the first half of my college, there wasn't really one, but I became much more interested in Buddhism. Ecker College is actually technically a Christian college, but it's really just Christian in name only. They had a chapel there, and so they would invite different religious leaders, and they had invited these Tibetan monks to make this sand mandala like this sand art and they made this really intricate elaborate picture and i just remember seeing them and it was so calm it was so just watching them was calm and they just seemed so comfortable with themselves and how they just moved they were so pleasant and delightful to interact with And they had a number of books about Buddhism by the Dalai Lama. And so I bought some and I started reading about it. And as somebody who had experienced so much suffering in their childhood, and as I was learning more and more about the world beyond myself and the amount of pain and suffering other people are going through, it made sense that. Buddhism, which emphasizes the experience of suffering and how to transcend that suffering would attract me and make sense. I didn't have a Jewish identity at the time. It was just I, you know, at that point, I knew like, yeah, we eat matzo ball soup. And I knew about Mel Brooks. I used to watch History of the World Part One with my grandma. And it was just kind of like, okay that's us. (laughs) And in college, at the beginning, it really never Played a significant part and then halfway through my time in college i was getting sick of just being there and in december 2004 there was a giant earthquake and tsunami that devastated southeast asia and i said i'm gonna drop out of college and go there <laughs> and i'm gonna go do something about it. i'm sick of like taking these like classes and hearing these like you know these armchair professors pontificate about the ills of the world and how we could alleviate suffering and how there are these great global institutions. And like, I don't care about that. Give me a hammer. I want to just go there and do something. So I was reaching out to a number of different organizations and they were like so happy to hear from me. And they said, okay, so what can you do? What kind of experience do you have? Are you in the skilled trades? Are you a doctor? Are you What can you do? And the reality was, all I could do was write a paper. But there was an organization in Indonesia that was in a province that was controlled by Islamicist rebels, and they were more than happy to take anybody who wanted to go there. And I was saving up money, and I mistakenly told my aunt that I was going to go there. And she freaked out and basically came to me with a counter offer. And she said, there's this other organization called American Jewish World Service. They have this summer program that you could volunteer in a bunch of different countries with other college students, and you get to help other people. And she said, I will pay for it. All the money you've been saving, you can keep. Just whatever you do, do not go to Indonesia and get kidnapped. And I was really hesitant at first, but I applied to it and I was accepted. I I wanted to go to a developing country and go help dig trenches to lay pipelines, not go to Ukraine and help restore Jewish cemeteries. But that's ultimately what I chose, largely because I know that my family originally came from Ukraine. And I've always been interested in my family's history. I used to speak to my grandma about, you know, her life growing up and her family. And I was just really curious about checking it out.
0: Did your aunt choose this particular program I know part of it was to steer you away from something she thought could be dangerous, but the fact that it had a Jewish component to it, was that part of her thought process of wanting to give you exposure? Because I wouldn't necessarily think that would be important from the way you described your, your background from a Jewish perspective.
1: So my aunt has the most connected Jewish identity of all my family members. She goes to shul for high holidays, is very active with the Federation, And that's actually how she found out about this program. She reached out to somebody in the Federation who said, well, why doesn't he try and do this American Jewish World Service program? She, for years, had been trying to convince me to get to Israel, but that was like a non-starter with me because the thought of going to Israel was, well, why would I want to go there? I don't want to become religious. I want to be normal and American. I don't want to do that. So that was a non-starter with me. But this was an alternative. Uh, the Jewish component, I'm not sure if that, how important that was to her, but it was important enough to her to find out about this program through the Jewish Federation.
0: As you're telling this story, I'm thinking, our listeners probably thought when you went to Ukraine, it was going to be the beginning of this rapid ascent to Orthodox Judaism because they're hearing something Jewish enter into your story. But from what I know about you, that's not where it starts to accelerate towards Orthodox Judaism. So what what happens coming out of that program as a next step? And how do you then get to a place that Judaism starts to become a little bit more prominent in your life?
1: Right. So it was significant in the sense that it was the first time I had ever done a trip with Jews. It was really one of the first Jewish things I'd ever done. And... What was most significant about it was the introduction of this concept called tikkun olam, which has very much been misappropriated by so-called progressive Jewish organizations to be some kind of Jewish byword for social justice. But that's also what kind of piqued my interest. And that becomes something from that moment that draws me into Judaism.
0: But there were other stops around the world, too, right? Including plans to go to Japan. Isn't that what eventually leads you towards Jewish observance?
1: So I get back from Ukraine and I am really interested in Judaism. I'm trying to read more about it, but it's more of like a backburner interest. And by the time I'm graduate on my way to graduate college, I'm thinking about what am I doing for work? What am I doing professionally? Right before I graduate, my aunt had been asking me for years to do birthright. And I had said, no way. No, I'm not doing birthright. That's like a bunch of Zionist propaganda. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to get hustled. Um, and... She said, no, no, sweetheart, there's this program. It's not political at all. It's called Leave Not, Leave a not. And I said, okay, I'll spend five minutes reading about them. <laughs> and, you know, I spent about five minutes reading about them. And it sounded good enough. And coming to Israel with Leave Not was such a brush of fresh air and really challenged a lot of preconceived notions I held about Israel from just a number of different angles. The Madrichim that were there were just from all over the religious spectrum. It was really the first time I had also met Jews who were Dati Lumi, because where I grew up in Brooklyn, you were either completely secular or you were completely religious and you wore just black and white. That was it. My first real exposure to any sense of variety of Jews that oh you could be jewish and wear jeans and have a kippah that was a possibility you could have colors it like really blew my mind i was really coming from a background with nothing but i also didn't know about leave note that they do really great key roof and i had never heard of key roof so I didn't know at that point that, oh, you could actually completely transform your relationship, not just with your Jewish identity, but with Hashem. And I was just so impacted by these really intense conversations I would have on the buses between stops. And it really blew my mind. And I had this moment near the end of my trip where I thought I shouldn't go to Japan after this. I had applied to a job in Japan to teach for a year. I'd studied Japanese for four years in college. I had a degree in international relations. It made sense that I was gonna go do it. And I had this moment where I said like no, like I should just cancel my contract. I'm in Israel already and I didn't do that <laughs> because I needed something more stable. It felt really scary to just say, I'm just going to like figure it out at that moment, especially given that this was all so new and fresh, and I hadn't really processed the experience. I just felt really inspired, and I wanted to sit with that more. So I w- was in Israel for two weeks, and then I came back to America, repacked my bags, and then 72 hours later, I flew to Japan.
0: Wow. But I think the way you're telling the story, what's happened here is that Israel and Judaism have made an imprint on you that you're feeling like you're going to revisit it at some point. This wasn't the moment, but you're feeling like it's going to somehow become more prominent in your life. But you just had more practical considerations at that point. So you you go to Japan and what happens from there?
1: I realized like within like two weeks, I had made a terrible choice. <laughs> <laughs> What am I doing here? Israel, it forced me to ask a lot of difficult questions about myself and identity. And I completed my contract when I I was in Japan. I stayed there for the entire year. I lived over a noodle shop. And the entire time I was there, I was reading books about Judaism. In the 72 hours that I was in America before I went to Japan, I went to Barnes and Nobles and I just bought a large number of books that I took with me to Japan. And I just spent just about the entire year reading about Judaism and had a lot of Jewish-related experiences while I was there. You know, in Japan, baseball is like almost like an Avodazara there. People love baseball. And so I said to my boss that. Not only am I American, I'm also Jewish. And Jews have a very important holiday called the Yom Kippur. And I wanted to get the day, not the night, but the day off so I could take a train to go to shul. And she was very, very hesitant. She did not want me to go. And then I found a Japanese translation of the story of Sandy Koufax and gave it to her. And she understood, and she said I had permission. And that's how I went to a shul in Japan. And it wasn't like a particularly spiritual experience. It was Sephardi shul with a lot of Israeli expats. And I didn't go there and had this transformational experience, but it was really one of solidarity with an identity that was starting to form. That I'm Jewish, and this is... I should be doing this because this is what Jews do. Like Jews go to shul on Yom Kippur. I didn't have anyone telling me that. I knew enough about Yiddishkeit at that point that it was important.
0: So, wait. At this point, you fulfill your contract, but you had also said, like within a couple of weeks, you realize it wasn't the you know the perfect next move for you. So, what what are you starting to plan? And what happens as Japan wraps up because you're going to have to come back to somewhere and to something. So, what's the next thing?
1: I end up getting accepted into. Two Jewish fellowships. The first is Adama, which is a sustainable agriculture program uh, that's ran out of Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center. And the uh, next was, again, with American Jewish World Service, where I was a fellow in their World Partners Fellowship, and I ultimately ended up going to India for a year
0: wow, you've been all over the place. Like we're we're only like halfway through your story and we're finding you in Israel and Japan and India and Ukraine, like all these amazing places as you're trying to figure out your place in the world. But it seems like that wouldn't necessarily yet mean you figured out where you want to settle and like really have your life. So like as you're coming out of India, do you come back to the United States? And how do you start to figure out the role Judaism is going to play in your life?
1: I didn't say this before, but this is actually also important to like, it happened in Japan, and it kind of carried me forward in terms of my Jewish identity. I was teaching a group of older students who were in their 60s and 70s. And they were in advanced class, and they wanted to read a novel. And they asked me to bring a bunch of English books from my apartment. And one of them was this Obscure Jewish book. I don't even remember the title of it. It wasn't very good, but they wanted to read about it because they knew I'm Jewish. And so they were interested in learning about a different culture. And it forced me to research a number of different topics in Judaism as I was teaching it. Like they were asking me, you know, what's this covenant? What's a bris? I actually had to give a class about what a bris was. And one of the students actually had taught me about who Sugihara was. He was a Japanese diplomat who was responsible for saving a number of Jews. And I was put in a position where every week I had to prepare a different topic about Jews and Judaism because it was going to come up in this novel. And that really forced me to rapidly learn things because my students were very curious and I didn't want to disappoint them. (laughs) I was reading a lot about Judaism. I was reading Rav Steinsaltz's 13 Petaled Rose, but I was also very much at the time, the concept of social justice was very important to me. I would say it's a core piece of my identity.
0: So something I know about you is that you're doing the interview today from Israel. Which means that given all these international travels, including stops in Israel, at some point you're making a decision that that's where your life is going to be. At the same time, given this is Saturday to Shabbos, I know that ultimately your going to end up at Orthodox Judaism. So what I'm most interested in is, given all these stops, how does the path towards an Orthodox version of Judaism start to accelerate? And how does that lead to this idea that your life could actually be in Israel?
1: Yeah, so... Towards the end of my time in India, I had been researching more about coming to Israel for yeshiva. I was reading so much, and I wanted to do something instructive with it. I went to the, the Chabad in my city and had Shavuot there. And it wasn't a religiously transformative experience, but it was a positive experience, And near the end of my time in India, a really traumatic situation that had happened. I was in the back of an auto rickshaw and a little beggar girl came up to me and started pulling on my clothes for for money, which is not an uncommon experience when you travel to India. As she's like pulling on my clothes and she bows her head to my feet. And I see that around her neck, there's a little boy holding his arms around her neck who's missing his legs below his kneecaps. And I completely break at that point. I I I'm so angry at Hashem. I I wanted nothing to do with Judaism and Hashem. I came back from India. I I moved back to America. There was no way I was going to Israel. There was no way I was going to do anything. So... I spent 10 months believing I was an atheist, wound up in another Jewish social justice program in New Orleans. And I met with rabbis from all different denominations and kind of went into more detail about what I had seen in India and larger questions about Hashem and difficult questions and wanted to hear what different denominations had to say. And I appreciate everything they shared. And ultimately, I found rabbis who who spoke from the more orthodox end of the spectrum. There was something that felt more authentic about their responses. Hashem was the central piece of their conversation. They gave me the space to be angry at Hashem. Hashem is big enough for all our feelings. And that like, Hashem isn't just our king, Hashem is our Abba. And that You know, as I experience with my children when they express the spectrum of emotions towards me, you know, I might roll my eyes, but I love them. And okay, they're upset at me. And, you know, my three year old yells at me and he tells me that I'm not going to be his Abba anymore. And it's like, that's actually healthy what he's doing. And that's what I was doing with Hashem. I was really angry. And they also encouraged me to learn. And so I was spending, More and more time at the Chabad house in New Orleans, and I didn't even know what the word macarve was at the time. I would go to the Chabad house once a week, and I'd go to a Tanya class, and it was a very small group of guys. And then I got invited to Shabbos meals, and I thought, like, wow, this is nice. And it was nice to see a healthy, functional family. But I worked for a social justice organization. One of the elements of my job was I was organizing meals for groups of volunteers who were coming to the city, and I spent a decent amount of my time in a kitchen, and halfway through my time in New Orleans, I started keeping some semblance of kosher. I went from eating the trafest of the trafe. I was cooking Cajun food, and I stopped being able to eat it. I was at Chabad, and I kind of said to myself that if I could keep kosher in New Orleans, I could keep kosher anywhere. And I kind of made a kosher contract with myself, and I said, I'm going to try this for a year. It wasn't because I wanted to become religious. It was just an element of Jewish identity I hadn't explored, and I just
0: wanted to try it out. So what I still don't understand is how this inspired you to return to Israel
1: the next stop of the journey is I go back to Isabella Friedman and I become a Teva educator and I'm taking groups of Jewish day school students on hikes through the woods and teaching them natural science in an experiential way it was a Jewish program and I was once again living with a group of Jews and you know, there was a lot of singing. I volunteered to be in charge of Shacharit. I was part of the Shacharit crew. I didn't actually really know what Shacharit was at that point. And so I had to start learning like Birkata Shakhar Shachar and start learning all these different things. And Baruch Hashem, there were two members of our group who were Balei Tshuva. I asked them all these questions about Hashem. We were always talking about Judaism. At the retreat center, there was also an Orthodox rabbi who was in charge of the, like, managing the kitchen there. And he said that they needed an extra mishkiah, And if I'd be interested in doing it, I said, sure, that sounds great. I said, what do I have to do? He said, you need to become Shomer Shabbos. (laughs) Like, in a very, like, friendly way. But he also said that because he knew that, like, I was on the fence. So I said, like, what do I have to do? He said, keep Shabbos for three weeks. And then come talk to me. And we're going to learn about Shabbos for the next three weeks. And so I did it. At that point, I had been wearing tzitzit. I had actually bought a pair of tefillin along the way. And then um, I kind of said, I want to learn more about Hashem. I'm not sure where I want to go. I needed to be with a community of like-minded people and have Rebaim to talk to about whatever came up. And I was accepted into a three-week taste of yeshiva experience through Chappelle's, Darche Noah. And um, I went there for three weeks. And that turned into three months. That turned into a year. And that turned into two years.
0: And I know someone significant comes along. How did you meet your
1: wife? So towards the year and a half mark at my time at Chappelle's, I... I called to my Rosh Hashiva's office and he asked me if I'd considered marriage at all in my life. And I, I said, yeah, I'd love to get married. And he said, like, we have a shidduch committee here. If we find somebody we think might be an appropriate fit for you, then we'll, we'll send them your way. I said, okay, great. I'll try it out. And what I had expected was, you know, to go through an unknown number of dates with different girls And then I'd eventually find my wife. The first girl I was set up with is my wife. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we get married, go back to America, thinking it was only going to be for one year. It turned into seven years. But we always knew that Aliyah was part of our reality. It's such a gift. And so after seven years, we made Aliyah with Baruch Hashem, our three children, a little over a year ago. We had a timer in our heads because one of my rebeyan emphasized that if you want to make Aliyah with children, it really helps when they're like below the age of like six or seven, or then it becomes more difficult for them to acculturate. To make it easier for them, our oldest at the time was about five years old, and we knew we were we were getting really close. And actually, it was when we had our, our son, and my wife delivered our son. And then six hours later, like she's on the computer and she's filling out the Nefesh Benefesh application. (laughs) No joke. Like I'm sitting there, like passed out. I wake up and I'm like, what are you doing? And she said, we're going to Israel.
0: You know what I just love about your story? It was a spiritual journey, but it was also a physical journey. And the two ultimately come together and realizing that Israel is the place where your family is meant to be. So I just want to say, given the unbelievable hardships that you had to overcome as a kid, how rough your childhood was, how the odds were probably just like tremendously stacked against you from the hand that you were dealt, you found your way to such an authentic connection to Judaism. And I just want to say, Mateo, thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. It's a truly inspiring journey.
1: Thanks. I appreciate
0: it. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.